scripture from Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they were glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The seal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jim. Well, good morning again, everybody. So glad you guys are here today. Wanted Before we jump into our text today and our sermon, wanted to uh, acknowledge and mention those uh, from our latest covenant membership class who have finished the process and, and then done their little uh, get-to-know-you conversation with me. So if they're here today, would, they, would you go ahead and stand? Uh, Jeff Kanegi, Don Gordon, Josh Kanegi, and Kara Kanegi. There they are, you guys, in the back of the soundboard. Let's welcome them in at the Covenant Membership here at Bethany Church. We take covenant membership as a, uh, a shepherding, a commitment, a community tool, a relationship tool here at Bethany Church to uh, commit to something larger than ourselves. If this is something you're not quite sure or you're kind of wondering about, I wanted to let you know today I put out there some extra copies on one of our counters of our Bethany Church covenant, and then within that covenant there's referenced a few documents. Our Bethany Church commitment to preserving marriages you see behind me our commitment to accountability and church discipline, and our commitment to peacemaking and reconciliation. So I, I put about 10 or 15 of those copies out there. If you're not a member yet, or maybe you're a member, and when we rolled out these new agreements, you never got them and read them as we asked everybody to, grab a copy today if you're just w- wondering, what is this all about? Uh, and encourage you next time we have a class to come explore uh, what covenant membership means for us here in our community at uh, Bethany Church. Well, again, welcome on this third Sunday of Advent. I heard from um, a a few complaints this week that uh, it was too much work for you to fill in your outlines. And so we went ahead this week and printed them for you, filled in. So we're just like, we're making it easy for you to worship here at Bethany Church. Uh, You got it. There's no work for you today. 
Anyways, grab that outline, have it out, hopefully. I don't know how that happened, but it did. But hey, it's uh, no cheating, no going ahead. That's going to be your temptation today. I know it. No going ahead. Stick with us as we jump into this passage today. Well, we're talking today about peace. Peace. We all want peace, don't we? All kinds of different kinds of peace. We all want peace. Peace in our relationships, peace in our marriages. Peace in our nation, peace in our world, peace at work, peace between your older siblings, your grown-up kids. We all want peace. Peace between us and our maker. When there's no peace, how does it make you feel? Just think about your own life. When you're lacking peace, what what do you feel like when there's a rift between you and your wife? Or the kids are bouncing off the walls or... When we read and hear about wars in distant places and the photos come back almost instantaneously on social media, or violent protests that have happened on our own streets of our own city a couple miles down I-5, how do you feel? We feel restless, don't you? You feel uneasy, especially when it's interpersonal. You feel fragmented, don't you? Like you're kind of coming in pieces when there's no peace in your life. Discouraged, maybe, overwhelmed when we don't have peace. And how many things do we use in our life or look to or grab onto to to try to finally get that peace, that wholeness we're looking for? We'll talk about that later. Everyone wants peace. And everyone knows deep down inside, and you do too, that peace, that peaceful existence that is formed by a just existence in the world. Everyone knows we need it and want it, but it's missing. And the things aren't the way they're supposed to be. The peace we want and the peace that God brings us isn't just the absence of violence, but it's actually even fuller, a word shalom. It's a wholeness. It's not just the absence of violence, but it's a perfectly just ordered society too and goodness in our world and life. And the irony is, you know we all want it, but look how hard we fight for peace, don't we? There's an irony there. We fight for it. And Advent is all about peace. But there's a tension we're going to see in our passage today. When we see the necessary, mighty, divine strength that would be needed to bring eternal peace applied to a newborn human baby. There's a tension there. How do we make sense of it all? And what does this mean for your life then, this passage today and this idea of peace? Let's look at where our hopes and dreams of peace between God and man are answered in one of the most famous passages of all, uh, in all of Isaiah, especially verses 6 and 7. You've probably heard them before. We're going to look today at two halves of this peace. Two sides, two halves, whatever you want to call them. So grab your filled-in outline, have your Bibles open as we look at the first half of this piece today. The peace of God that is going to be revealed in the first half of this passage. The peace of God is revealed. The peace of God is revealed in the beginning of chapter 9 is, is, is quite staggering if we're going to stop for a moment and think about as we have to with this old prophetic book, Isaiah, think about the historical context of what was happening. Last couple of weeks, 
Uh, we were in the latter chapters of Isaiah. Do you remember in the 40s? We're in the latter chapters where he was prophesying about the future captivity of Judah, the future captivity that would come to the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 BC as they were taken captive to Babylon. Well, this week we kind of go back in time as we go towards the beginning of Isaiah to around the time of 733 B.C., actually in Isaiah's life now, contemporary time for him, when the nation of Assyria now, not Babylon, they weren't quite powerful enough yet, but this other nation, Assyria, was being used by God, as Isaiah writes, to discipline his people for their rebellion, for their refusal to believe his promises, and their trusting of foreign allies for protection rather than in God himself. They were practicing the occult, chapter 8 says right before our chapter, going to mediums and fortune tellers, the people of God, going off to see fortune tellers. So this is a setting now in Isaiah's lifetime when we get to our passage today. And in 722 BC, Assyria overcomes actually the whole northern kingdom of Israel and deports many. Here's a little context for us. A couple pictures popping up for us here. On the left there, we got, as we go back to these prophetic books, we've got to have a little understanding here. It just doesn't make sense. On the left there, we got a, obviously a map of uh, uh, the Middle East there on the Dead Sea and Sea of Galilee. And you see, that's the 12 tribes of Israel there. This is before they had two kingdoms of Judah and Israel. And why you notice the two kingdoms in the northwest there? Uh, Naphtali, which Jim read today, and Zebulun. You see them there. I want you to notice those today uh, because they're going to be mentioned in our passage as you heard read today. These were the two areas now where the initial attacks and the initial deporting of people took place by Assyria, as you can see in that second image there. So you've got to see the striped lines. That's the northern kingdom Israel and Sea of Galilee there. You see those red dots up at the top? That's where the initial attacks took place uh, uh, from Assyria. And Assyria overtakes that northern area in 733 B.C. and it completely attacks it in 722. You can imagine now, just a little context there. The words of Isaiah, how shocking our passage is today when you hear how chapter 8 ends and describes the tone, the situation, the attitude of God's people. Here it is, chapter 8, 21 and 22. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they're hungry, they'll be enraged. And will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And turn their faces upward and they'll look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom and anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's how chapter 8 ends. And then these hopeful words of Isaiah in chapter 9. They must have seen absolutely absurd to God's people. Absurd. And it's no surprise that Isaiah goes down in history as being rejected by the people and by our own standards, he would have been a, a, a complete failure. Isaiah would have been. But don't we do it too? We look at circumstances and we have faith and we think, well, we think that God might keep his promises. And I, and I, I mean, I hope he'll keep his promises and I believe he will. When we feel like we're in areas of distress and gloom and darkness too. But let's unpack this first half, because we're going to see Isaiah, even in the midst of this ending of this chapter, we get to 9, he's got this certainty. He's so sure that God's people will be delivered, that peace will come 
It's a certainty of a future peace and a hope that can be ours too today. If we believe who God is, who he says he is, and let God be God. So let's look at a few things, how he's revealing the peace. Uh, We're looking at peace revealed in this first half. Here's how he's revealing peace. God acts and turns contempt right away in this chapter 9 into a certain saving for his people. He's certain of it, Isaiah, as he speaks it. A certain saving for his people from darkness and gloom, from the contempt of God's judgment brought on them as he used Assyria, comes such quick, certain hope of peace. Look at verse 1 with me. But there will be no gloom. So he mentions that chapter, and all of a sudden Isaiah says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The former time he brought into contempt, there's that word, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nation. Isaiah predicts a future restoration, a future hope, a future time of peace. For you see there are tribes mentioned, Zebulun, Naphtali, and Galilee. I think we've heard of that area, Galilee, right? You've heard it. Gospel Mark, right? That's where Jesus did most of his ministry, Galilee. And Isaiah's prophesying for that very area that encompassed Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee, that area that would be attacked by Assyria. Surely their gloom will be gone, he says. He says, surely, I'm certain of it. A transformation will come. A glorious way, he calls it. So much so that even their names will be transformed to way of the sea, land beyond the Jordan, he calls it, Galilee of the nations, which means also it'll be a glorious day for the Gentiles too, not just the Jews. But this this dawn, this redemption will come to all people in the world. But this is the challenge for every generation of God's people. As you look at darkness and gloom, and then you look at God's promises. You look at the situations of your life, and yet you look to God's Word and see what He says, and you compare the two. Here's the challenge that God's people had then that we have today. Which reality are you going to live by? Which reality are you going to live by? The gloom of maybe the present, of maybe even your life today, or of God's promises future promises, promises today. How will you read your day-to-day experience? It's a challenge of all God's people of all time. Will you judge only by your circumstances or maybe the emotions that those circumstances are causing? Or will your heart look in faith at the reality and say, well, well, yes, this is real. I'm really maybe in a dark place or in a gloomy place, the place of anguish, Isaiah calls it. It's real, and it's really happening, and yes, this looks gloomy and dark, but this isn't real reality. It's real, yes, but it isn't real reality. By faith, maybe I will live out of the promises of, of a glorious new way, a way of the sea, an eternal peace. This is real reality. That's the challenge of all God's people for all time. Which reality are you going to live out of? The present way things look, which is real, but the real, real, real reality of God's promise. That's why Isaiah can be so certain. He's living out of that. 
By faith, he's living out of it. The way of God and his grace to undeserving sinners. That's where Isaiah is coming out of. Because that's what happens. Anguish will turn to peace, and it does, and it will for us, even when God's people don't deserve it. It's our second way it's revealed. His people receive the light of his favor. They receive the light of his favor. So he does. God acts. He turns this contempt. He's gonna, he says in verse 1, into this way of peace, but they will receive the light of his favor too. Verse 2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. We're going to get to this explanation of how, how this light has shone upon them. As look at verses 4 through 6, all begin with the word for, for, for. You look down your text there. It's going to explain how, and we'll see that, how those who walked lived in darkness. They've had a big change. Someone has taken a giant spotlight and just shined it upon them, just turned it on, a big floodlight upon God's people, Isaiah is describing. Like, like the creative God who spoke light into existence. He initiated it. He did it. He spoke it. It happened. Here now, he brings a new light, a new circumstance, a new change, a new light on their circumstance. It's hard to wait in the dark, isn't it? It's hard to wait when you're in the dark. I think of playing um, hide-and-seek with my kids, or if you have your grandkids. The darker the hiding place, (laughs) the further it is from a source of light, the shorter it is the time the kids will actually stay hidden. (laughs) What do I mean by that? You know, it's not but I can count to 10, and I I say, ready now, here I come, and 10 seconds after that, I'm just looking for them. They come bursting out of the dark closet. Here I am, Daddy, here I am, right? They come bursting out. They don't want to stay in the dark. It's too dark. They come bursting out. But in real life, we don't always get to get out of the dark closet, do we? Or the dark hiding place, the dark cave or corner that you might feel you're in. We don't always get to jump out that quick, do we? Ten seconds after, ready or not, here I come. So while God's people were rebelling, even in Isaiah's time, they were in a dark, gloomy place, a cavern, a cave, you might call it. Even in Isaiah's time, there was a faithful remnant. And what were they doing? They couldn't make it end. They were being captured and overtaken. So what did they do? They trusted in God's promises. And here's what they were doing. Isaiah says in verse uh, 17 of chapter 8, I will wait for the Lord, even in the midst of the darkness, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. We wait. We wait patiently in faith for God to deliver us when you seem to be in a dark hiding place. That's not passive inactivity. That's not what that means. As I even think back to uh, David's sermon a a few weeks back, we talked about faith being an action, a, a life lived out. It's not passive inactivity, but it's living actually day to day. It's living even if you feel that you're in the middle of that darkness as God's people were boldly. Walking forward in faith another day, even when the closet door still seems shut or when God seems to even be hiding his face. So you seek his hiding face. 
as they were doing, as they waited, as they hoped in him. Because, here's the third revelation, their gloom, your gloom, will be turned to joy. It will. Isaiah is so certain of it. He's so certain of it. Well, why? Why is he certain of it? He mentions verse 3, a stunning victory has occurred. Some kind of victory. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. There it is. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as, when, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. It's kind of a kingdom language, kingly, warrior language there, the spoils, the harvest, the joy has come, a victorious battle has taken place, peacetime language there, they've got the spoils, they're celebrating, a feast maybe think of, a great feast has come to their darkness. It's language that's supposed to make us think of of kingly language. And in particular, two kings, I think. The mighty kings, David, the King David, and his son Solomon. It makes us think, and as I was studying this week, of God's covenant with David. His covenant, it's an agreement between two parties, remember? With a desired result and and commitment to obedience, with a common goal going forward. Here Here was God's covenant to David from 2 Samuel 7. It's important for our passage this week and even next week. Let's take a look at it. When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to David, you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring, up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay, so surely applies to Solomon, David's son, who built a house for God. But this language also, as we think of, remember, the horizons of prophecy here and then and maybe future, this language is too great for Solomon, too. An eternal throne? A forever kingdom? When you realize that this eternal king is Jesus, here and in our passage today, and that ultimate peace can be found in him, you know what happens? You begin to let go of those things you were holding on to so tightly to give you peace right here in the here and now. A temporary peace. And joy multiplies. And joy grows. Gloom is turned to joy. Darkness is turned to light. Sadness is filled with hope. That's what happens. That's what Isaiah is trying to do for God's people here. Yeah, this earthly kingdom, it is reality. But real reality is an eternal king and an eternal kingdom that we are waiting for. That's real reality. It's hard because we don't see it all the time. And it is, it's supernatural. It's spiritual. But it's physical too. You're here, aren't you? These are citizens of the kingdom. If you've placed yourself under the king, it's here now. Isaiah is revealing this peace to his God's people who are in the middle of being captured. He's revealing it. So let's look at the second half of how it will be applied now. How will this new light, this new peace be applied? Of course, as God has acted in history to speak light into existence, as he initiated and acted to deliver 
his people from uh, Egypt in the book of Exodus. His grace and mercy act for his people in a final victory too that we're going to talk about. How does he apply this peace? How will he bring peace? What will God do? How will God bring a solution for his people? Here's the first one. God acts and delivers his people from their enemies. Verse 4 says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is the way God has always worked. Always worked. How he'll do it. What's he going to do? How is he going to deliver? I mean, what could look more gloomy than being in slavery for 400 years as God's people were in Egypt? That's a long time in the dark closet, isn't it? That's generations and generations and generations that came and went as they waited and looked for God's hiding face. But God didn't forget. The verse says, he broke the yoke. Which he's, I think he's referencing back to Exodus. He delivered his people. He initiated. He acted by grace and he brought them out. He brought them out and saved them. He destroyed the oppressor of his people. Like the days of Midian, the verse says. What in the world does that mean? Like the days of Midian. Well, the book of Judges is before Isaiah's time now. Before they'd set up kings and had kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom, before Isaiah's time, the book of Judges, there was a man named Gideon that God used to deliver his people who lived, go figure, in the area of Zebulun, Naphtali, and Galilee. Go figure, huh? Isn't it funny how God works that way? There was a group of people called the Midianites that were pillaging the Israelites food and supplies. They were coming in on rogue attacks, thousands of them, so much so that they, the Bible says they were like locusts coming in. And uh, it says in, the, in Judges that when they came, even the, the Israelites would hide in dark caves, huh? dark caves, and they would go and they would hide when they would come and they'd come and pillage. And Gideon has an army. He's going to go defeat and deliver God's people, and his army is 20,000 strong. And you remember what God does? He has them whittle it down step by step from 20 to 10 to all of a sudden Gideon's left there. Do you remember with how many? 300. 300 men. And on a dark night, Gideon and the men, God, they do what God tells them to do. They take torches and they go out and they surround the camp of Midian and they hide the torches in clay pots. Encircle the camp that's described as a camp, almost locusts, so many there. 300 people, soldiers surrounding. And what does God do? God defeats the army for them. He does it. They break the pots, the light appears, light appears, bright and shining to deliver, and they blow trumpets, and they shout, and in the confusion and in the dark down there, uh, the Midianites actually end up defeating themselves almost as they're slaying and swinging swords, and God's people never lift a sword. And God's people enter, and they receive the victory already won for them. That's how he does it. God's people receive the victory already won. 
As in the day of Midian, Isaiah says. That's what he means. The boots and garments, verse uh, 5, I think, goes on. They're already burned in the fire before God's people ever even walk on the battlefield. God does it. He brings a victory to his people. He's always done it. Always done it. Before they ever even walk on the battlefield. And isn't this the way that God kind of works? He tends to do this so that he will receive the glory Not an army of 20,000, not an army of 10,000. 300 couldn't claim anything, could they? Just like you look at the circumstances of your life and many times you go, I could never have worked that out. And what do you say? We go, glory to God. There is no way that could have turned out the way it did. Doesn't that happen in your life sometimes? And what do you do instead of going like, I'm so glad I was able to accomplish that. I'm so glad we were able to pull that off. Didn't we do good and pat ourselves on the back? No, we go, I have no idea how we made it through that season of life looking back. Oh, it must have been God. It must have been God's victory. It must have been Him. He always works this way. The glorious victory comes with a sudden burst of light. Exodus, Midian, today. But now the light will be a person, a person. And that peace will be for the whole world between God and man. And here's where the tension of our story is magnificent. It's that person. This is where the tension comes in. The child is named and he reigns eternally. It's our final how. How is the peace applied? Look at verse 6 and 7. We got to read them again. For to us, it's the third way it's applied. To us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want us to get an actual picture of the tension here. Isaiah paints this this grand victory for us, and then he takes us to the root of that victory. He places the world's hope on the birth of a baby, the birth of a child, and not even in Isaiah's passage, not even on what that child will do. And we know that. We know how Christ's life went. We're studying the Gospel of Mark. But Isaiah doesn't even go there. He places all the hope just on even the birth of this child. That even just according to that, if he's born, victory's secured. If he's even born, victory's as sure as done. It's amazing. But a child... A child. I need a baby. Where can I find one? There's one right here. I'm going to grab this little baby. Oh. Oh, she's asleep. We'll see how long. This is Clementine, by the way. Hi. She is out. Look at this little baby. I got her little hands right here. You see there? There she is. There's her little finger. Her little toes here. A baby. So little, helpless, dependent on her mom and dad. And if you think about it too, if I speak to her right now, she doesn't really know I'm speaking. She might hear my voice, but she can't respond. She can't answer back to me. She doesn't know how to talk yet, right? Totally dependent on her parents and vulnerable. Dependent on her mom and dad for everything. Me holding her even. She needs somebody to hold her and care her and lift her and feed her. 
And now think for a moment that Jesus was born this way. That Mary held him for a moment. A son, Isaiah says, for us. For us. A son given to us. Now, Clementine's not for me. She's not for us. She's not given to us. She's for Davis and Valentine and Grandma and Grandpa too. (laughs) But Isaiah says this child will be for us, given to us. Not so with Clementine. My wife might want to take her home, but um, not to us. This is for Davis and Valentine, this sweet little girl. But now I want you to think of the words now. Think this deliverer that Isaiah mentions was born a baby. The one who would deliver the the world. Think of those words now applied. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. Prince of peace. And the government will be upon his shoulders even. His kingdom will be David's eternal kingdom, a kingdom forever. No government in the history of the world lasted forever. Christ's government will. Think about those terms now applied to to just a baby now. A little tiny baby. Wonderful counselor. Got her? She might be awake now. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace held in hand. How can this be? This is Christmas. This is Advent. How can a baby do this? I think Isaiah wanted us to take seriously what he'd already called this baby twice. Take a look, Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, right before our passage. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and it shall be called his name Emmanuel. That's how. It will sweep on into Judah. That's the river of Assyria's judgment. It'll overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and the outspread its wings will fill, excuse me, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. It means God with us. God with us. And Isaiah doesn't want us to forget it, and he, doesn't, and he wants us to take it seriously. So right away then in chapter 9, he says, God with us, a child will be born and united to us by becoming a baby for us, to us, this child. Take a step back even further now, from Clementine even. Earlier in her life, earlier in our lives, and hear the words as we look at a picture of a zygote. Wonderful counselor means miracle worker of wisdom. Mighty God. I mean, you can't get around that. That means this baby is God. The zygote that was fertilized, mighty God. It's incredible. It's the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. Eternal Father. How is a baby eternal? How can you use that word for a child that's going to be born? And yet at the same time, eternal, supernatural, like a father to us, natural, caring, loving, providing, 
Prince of Peace. This baby's going to bring perfect peace. It's amazing. It's incredible. You think about it, that a baby, and back further, even to a zygote. Doesn't every person in the world on some level want peace? Don't you think that's the case? Look at our obsession with, with government. If only our policies, or only if our people were in power, things would be right in the world. We'd have peace on earth. We could put it all right if they just put us in power. Well, we want emotional peace, so we govern ourselves, maybe with another self-help book, or we govern and numb ourselves with hours and hours of entertainment and screen time. We want peace. We'll do anything almost to get it, won't we? We work on governing our self-esteem by crafting our identity. Who am I? i got to find myself, figure myself out through expressing myself and being who I am. By finding my true self and not letting anybody tell me that it's wrong or invalid or maybe even harmful to myself. Don't tell me that. We want material peace, so we govern our finances masterfully, thinking if I just have enough materially, then I'll have peace. I'll finally have that peace I've been looking for. We want physical peace, so we govern ourselves with Diets and exercise, don't we? We do all these things. We do all this. And then sometimes we even surround ourselves with voices that tell us everything's going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. And we think, okay, I think I finally have, I think I've got some peace. (sighs) Then a crisis comes, doesn't it? (laughs) Something unexpected happens in our life. Something we couldn't plan. Something we didn't have a spreadsheet for, right? Right? happens in your life, and you realize, I don't have as much peace as I thought I had. I don't have it. But what if your greater need was only available through this strange baby who becomes a warrior king? What if your greater need for peace, not Moses, Moses would lead a people out of bondage only to see them fail and fail himself. Not like Gideon necessarily, who would only deliver a small group of people after testing God multiple times. Not like David or Solomon, who would come to earth to defeat, uh, or who would uh, come and be a king and yet fail even as kings who would one day let their own people down and see their own kingdom destroyed? What if your greater need was from a better Moses, a better Gideon, a better David, a better Solomon, David's son, his eternal son, who would come to earth to defeat your greatest enemies, sin and death? What if that's the greatest peace you need? And what if when you get that, it will finally kind of set those other things and put those other things at ease? That this baby would come and bring peace by dying on a cross as the baby would grow, as we know the story, as the God-man for you. What if that's the peace? This week, there is a group of people 
having their temporal, worldly peace absolutely turned upside down. It's been absolutely shattered in the nation of China. There's a church called Early Rain Covenant Church, and it's on the national news, so we can talk about this. It's all over the place. It's a non-sanctioned house church called Early Rain Covenant Church. Bible-believing, solid, gospel-believing, Jesus-loving, impacting their culture there in mighty ways. Mid-December, just a couple weeks ago, police detained more than 100. 100 now. That'd be half our room here would be gone. A hundred of early reigns, leaders and members, began on December 9th. And the heaviest crackdown, it's, it is the heaviest crackdown in recent time on one of China's most influential, unregistered churches now. They actually have a building, even though they're called a house church, they have a building. Well, by the afternoon on December 12th, 80 people still remain in, cu- in custody, including Pastor Wang Yi, their, their lead pastor. And only one of their elders was not arrested, too. Authorities have charged both Wang and his wife, uh, Zhang Rong, if I say that right, with an indictment to subvert state power, which could result in a 5- to 15-year sentence. Peace has been overturned, hasn't it, in their life? Jane Rong, his wife, will remain for six months for sure in in residential surveillance, it's called, solitary confinement, his wife now, uh, where it's known that many times torture and forced forced confessions happen. Wang Yi's future here, it's uncertain. His wife, his kids now, the churches, but not in his eyes. He's looking at real reality. He sees this. He knows this is real too. But he's looking at real reality. Uh, The pastor Wang Yi had prepared a letter already because he knew this was probably going to happen that that should be sent out uh, upon his arrest. In it, he says this. The gospel demands that disobedience of faith must be nonviolent. The mystery of the gospel, you could say Advent, you could say Christmas, the mystery of the gospel lies in actively suffering, even being willing to endure unrighteous punishment as a substitute for physical resistance. They're doing that now. Peaceful disobedience is a result of love and forgiveness. He went on, the cross means being willing to suffer when one does not have to suffer. For Christ had limitless ability to fight back. Yet he endured all of the humility and hurt. The way that Christ resisted the world that resisted him was by extending an olive branch of peace on the cross to the world that crucified him. For on earth, there has only ever been a thousand-year church. There's never been a thousand-year government, referring to his own communist government there. There's only eternal faith. There's not eternal power. He went on, one more slide, I hope God uses me. How does he say this? By means of first losing my personal freedom, to tell those who've deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority. And there's a freedom they cannot restrain. A freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. How is that possible? 
How is that possible that Pastor Yee can say these things? How is it possible that he can have this inner peace while his church has been ransacked? I think it's because he's found the truest, real reality, eternal peace of the one true king. What other way? And he's probably tempted to go here and, and live in this, real, this reality, but he goes back and he says, no, 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 I know real realities here because Jesus came. Like Isaiah, deliverance is certain. A child has been born. It's happened. And so thousands of years later, Pastor Yee can sit in a prison and have these words go out. Here's Advent. This is Advent. Lots of babies have become kings, but only one king became a baby. Lots of babies have become kings, but only one king became a baby. Emmanuel, God with us, because he needed to be us, to die for us. And yet God who could raise from the dead a light to the nations, the light of the world. And he's coming again. That's real reality. He's coming again. So have peace with him before he does. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to live in real reality. We know life has its challenges, its dark, gloomy seasons. We look at the story of Pastor Yi and his congregation early rain, and they're in the middle of it. So we pray for them for a moment. As they've asked for it, as it's gone out in international news stories, they've requested prayer. We pray for them today. We pray that even maybe a passage like Isaiah 9 would pop into their heads or into their service and that they would see people another time of history, God's people going through a darkness, an anguish, a gloom. And yet they waited then for your revealing face as Pastor Yi waits now with his congregation as we all wait for your face to return again, Jesus, to earth. We thank you that you became a baby. We thank you that you chose to live as a human so you could represent us as sinful humans and take away and defeat our greatest enemy, sin and death. And that's what David points us to. That's what Gideon points us to. That's what Moses points us to. That's what the Exodus points us to. Final Exodus of the cross. And you're leading your people out. So be with that church. Deliver them, Lord, in the way you can. Give them real reality this Christmas to sustain them. And for us too, we ask it. In Christ's name, amen.